Okay, um, go to 1, 1 Samuel, chapter 17, and uh, we're going to do a uh, look at the story of David and Goliath, one of the uh, massively well-known Old Testament stories. Um, <clears throat> so let's uh, we'll read our way through it. We're going to start in a chapter 16, just to get the, the background to it. And uh, so I'll, I'll start off, I'm going to read the, the first 13 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now there's two, two things there just to put against the background. And the first, I think, is, is kind of you know, prophetic, or it's very, very relevant to, to what the law's doing today. Because the history here is that Israel has got its first king, and uh, King Saul. And 
basically, Saul's history with the Lord was that from the word go, as soon as he became king, he just did not do what the Lord told him to do. He did some of it. But the thing about Saul is that he always felt free to look at what the Lord told him to do and to vary it according to what he thought was best. So the point is that Saul was someone who would obey the Lord to a point, but he wouldn't go all the way. He would kind of hold judgment for himself. So if there was something he didn't quite think was the best thing to do, even though the Lord had told him, he wouldn't do it. And so what happened was that here Saul has been rejected. And that what we're seeing is there's a transition from <clears throat> a leadership of God's people that is based on partial obedience to his word <clears throat> over to King David, who was a man after God's own heart. Now, David certainly failed, but he never showed any inclination to second-guess the Lord. Can you see what I mean? So, whereas Saul did things his way and obeyed the Lord when it suited him, King David was wholeheartedly for the Lord. <coughs> and I think that's prophetic to today because, I mean, when you look at everything that's gone wrong with the church and, and has been going wrong for, for so many centuries, it all began with wrong leadership, you know, sort of like coming in. And you see in the church, you know, in the New Testament that, you know, leadership was, was, was plural, it was servants, it wasn't hierarchical, it wasn't like professional leaders from the top in charge running things like a business. That's precisely what leadership wasn't like in the early church. And then from the time of the early church fathers, and it's been with us ever since, you know, that they, you know, they introduced a, a, an expert, hierarchical, professional leadership. And really, ever since then, the church has been run, regardless of what form it is, more like a religious corporation, rather than actually churches being little extended families, like we see in the New Testament. And of course, the point is that once you've got hierarchical leadership, the thing is that, that, that they become the authority, rather than the Word of God being the authority. And so what happens is, as soon as you've got hierarchy in the church, you have an authority that's in conflict with the Bible, and therefore there's no guarantee that there's going to be freedom to do what the Bible says, because if it doesn't suit the leadership, it's not going to happen. And the irony is that the mere fact that there's hierarchical leadership goes against what the Bible teaches anyway. And so we see that there's always been this problem in the Christian church that has always come from the foundational error of the early church fathers, and that was having uh, a kind of uh, a hierarchical leadership that became kind of like, you know, the big cheese in charge, uh, completely hierarchical and, and professional, as I say, running things like a religious business. And so what we're seeing here is a transition. God's judgment comes on one type of leadership, and then it transfers over to a different type because David was a very, very different type of leader than Saul was. As I say, Saul always reserved judgment to do it his way when he didn't quite approve of what the law told him to do, whereas David was wholeheartedly out to do the Lord's will, even though obviously he failed, and he failed very badly here and there, but nevertheless he was a man 
after God's own heart. Now, that, that's the first thing, but it ties in now with the second thing, and this is a theme that we're going to see that really runs powerfully all the way through this story. And uh, if, you, if, if you go back to verse 7, uh, what happens is Eliab stands, you know, the oldest brother, Jesse's oldest brother. So Samuel knows that one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king the new leader. And so obviously they start with the oldest, you know, so Eliab being the oldest, he stands in front of him. And, it, and, and uh, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. And Samuel took one look and he thought, oh yes, that must be him. Oh, he looks impressive. This has got to be the one. And then it says in the next verse, but... The Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And one of the things, the theme that we're going to see running through here is, as it's uh, you know, put in, in, in the prophet Isaiah, that God's ways are not man's ways. And his thoughts are not man's thoughts. And part of the problem that there is always going to be, the, the great challenge that we always have as we're following the Lord, is to make sure that we're not imposing our way of doing things on his way of doing things. Because the Lord's way of doing things are totally different. And of course the whole point about the world's way of doing things is that when the world does something, it looks good. And because it looks good, you get the glory. People are impressed with you. That's the pride of life that the Bible condemns. Whereas what we're going to be seeing is that the Lord works from a completely different vantage point completely. And so, you know, all the time there's, there's this conflict between the way that the Lord goes about things and the way that the sinful nature goes about things. And the challenge is always, are we going to go with the word of God? Or are we going to do with what seems to our sinful natures to be the most sensible or appropriate way of doing things? Okay, so there, there's kind of the background to it, and, uh, and we're going to actually now get into the in, into the story. So let's uh, now go to chapter seventeen, and we'll start reading from verse one, and we'll just kind of you know I'll read sections and then you know sort of comment on it. Okay. <clears throat> Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesdamin between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So, you know, and it's going to be one of those arrangements that sometimes there were in the ancient world where two armies wouldn't necessarily fight with a whole army. They'd have a champion. So one army would put forward a champion and say, look, if you can beat him, you've won. If he beats your champion, we've won. Okay. So, you know, the Philistines, you know, out comes their trump card. All right. Verse four. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. Mm, you see? Playing their trump card here. He had a bronze helmet on his head, 
and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. I mean, that would be hard for, a, you know, most people to lift, all right? And that's just his armour. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now just notice something there. Goliath is throwing out the challenge. And look what he says. Are you not servants of Saul? And then he goes on, I defy the ranks of Israel. Now what we're going to see is we're going to see David representing true faith and we're going to see Israel representing God's people when they're in unbelief. And one of the things that we're going to see here is that that, that here we have a completely humanistic outlook. You know, that, you know, that Goliath is saying, oh, you're following Saul. Now, we're, you know, and the people are silent here. You know, and he says, I defy the ranks of Israel. Now, just underline that, because when we get to how David handles the situation, you'll see an amazing contrast, okay? Okay, verse 12. Now, David was the son of an Athrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. So every day for forty days Goliath threw out his challenge, right? And of course the people, you know, again, were dismayed and terrified. So it was God's people cowering in front of the challenge that was being thrown at them, okay? Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Now just log up there. David is sent to the battle line by his father, all right? Just chalk that up. He's simply doing what his father told him to do. He's being a, an obedient son. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. David here is doing the right thing. He's doing what his dad told him to do. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. 
David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted as usual, uh, and shouted his usual defiance, and, uh, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. So every day for 40 days, the Israelite army go out, you know, and do all the posturing. Goliath appears, says, okay, who's going to fight me? And the Israelites all run away. So now David has been sent to the battle line by his father to take provision for his brothers who are in the armies, uh, who are in the army. Now, what we're going to do now as we look directly at the story of David and Goliath, what we're going to do <clears throat> is we're going to be comparing David and his trust in God to the rest of God's people in their unbelief and disobedience to God. You see the difference? So we're going to be looking at a contrast between genuine faith, a trust in God that issues in obedience to his word, and the unbelief, the not trusting God, the not trusting him enough to put your neck on the block, which issues in disobedience. So that's the first thing. We're going to be comparing genuine faith to unbelief. So, you know, believers really trusting the Lord in contrast to carnal believers. And at the same time as we go through it, we're going to also note the three sources of opposition. Because David, in his faith, he ends up being opposed from three different areas. And each of them are tremendously important to understand, okay? So, we're now going to do it a little bit more, kind of like verse by verse. So, so now we've, we're going to do um, verse 20, 25. And, uh, well, now in verse 24, we have Israel's response. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Uh, now, the Israelites have been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. Now, then, just notice so far, obviously, Goliath isn't going to be mentioning the Lord, is he? All right, he's, he's a pagan. He's a Philistine. He's just challenging the armies of Israel and you lot follow Saul. All right. Now, notice all the responses we're seeing from the Israelites. Have any of them mentioned the Lord but once? No, they haven't. Now, in contrast, look at David's response. Verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, can you see the contrast? The rest of God's people in their unbelief are seeing Goliath, someone who none of them think they can be, and therefore they're just in despair and unbelief. You know, they, they've just thrown the towel in and, you know, and they're just dismayed. But the point is none of them are mentioning the Lord at all. They're viewing it from a purely human point of view. Whereas David comes along and he looks at the situation and he says, 
this is a disgrace. He says, how come we got a Philistine defying the armies of the living God? Can you see the difference? David is coming from a viewpoint. He's looking at this situation through the eyes of someone who has faith in the Lord. Whereas the rest of God's people are just in unbelief. They look, even though they believe in the Lord and, and, and you know and all that, they're, they're God's people. Nevertheless, the reality is they're looking at it through purely human eyes. And therefore they are in complete uh, defeat about it. Then they repeated to him what had been what what they had been saying and said, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. Now in verse 28, David now faces the first bout of opposition. What has he done? He's come along and everyone is saying, oh, we haven't got a chance against Goliath. David comes along and says, this is a disgrace. How come a Philistine is standing against the armies of the Lord? He's saying, what's wrong? Well, you know, what's wrong with everyone? How come we're not sorting this Philistine out in the name of the Lord. So that's what David has said, okay. Now then, look at the first bout of opposition. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now, the first bout of opposition comes from his own family. This is his brother. And it's horrible opposition as well. Because the point is, you see, Eliab interprets David's faith as pride and arrogance. And then what he does is he pitches in with the most horrible false accusations. And he starts accusing David of not looking after the sheep, which is his job. He was a shepherd. And you see, this is a classic example of someone opening their mouth, condemning someone absolutely to bits before they've got their facts straight. David had not deserted the sheep because he wanted to be in on at the action at the battle lines. David was there because he'd been obedient to his dad. David was entirely innocent of any wrongdoing. But because he represented being right with God, that immediately condemned others of God's people around who weren't right with God. Can you see what I mean? Where you get true faith, true faith will always convict unbelief. And of course, we all know that whenever you're convicted of sin through the agency of an external party, you've got two choices. You accept the, you know, you accept it and put yourself, you know, admit you're wrong, put your hand up and get right with God, or you've got to shoot the messenger, haven't you? If you don't like the message, then if you throw enough dirt at the messenger, you can kind of try and, oh, well, I don't have to listen to what they say because they're such dreadful people. And Eliab, his own brother, he pitches in with all these accusations against David, none of which were true. David was not being arrogant. He was simply trusting God. And David had not, he was not being irresponsible. He, hasn't, he hadn't deserted the sheep. 
he, you know, he wasn't there when he should have been somewhere else looking after the sheep for his father. He was there because Jesse had told him to be there. So the point is, David here is absolutely blameless. And yet now, from his own family, uh, you know, Eliab pitches in and you get all this kind of false accusation, uh, you know, sort of designed to, um, you know, basically to shut him up, I suppose. And of course, the point is that, that, that do you think here that a little bit of what lay behind Eliab's anger with him now, do you think it's the fact that Eliab was rejected as king and David got the function? Do you see what I mean? When you look through the Gospels, a lot of the, the hatred that the, the religious leaders had towards Jesus and the reason they were so opposed to him, well, you know, in, in the Gospels, it says it clearly, they were envious of him. Because Jesus came along and he had a natural authority and power from God. Obviously, he was God become a man. But he had a natural power and authority that the leaders didn't have. And they were jealous of him. And so because they were jealous of him, they tried to smear him to stop people being influenced by him. You know, because it didn't work. The more they smeared him, the more people listened. But the point is, can you see this principle all the time? That if you're if you're if you're being used by the Lord to represent genuine faith uh, amongst you know sort of like God's people who are in unbelief, that that is going to stir up opposition to you, and uh, you know and you're going to get all manner of false accusation and stuff like that. But the sad thing is that here it's coming from David's own family. And I know there are people here in this church who have experienced this. Uh, it's not an easy thing to experience, but it is something that is a reality at times. And, you know, as Jesus said, that, you know, that, that, that if the cost of being faithful to him is problems even from your own family, well, then we've got to, in that instance, put the Lord before family. And, uh, you know, it's never, it's never easy when that happens. And then look at, in verse 29, David's response to this. He says, now what have I done? He said, well, what are you going on about? I haven't done anything wrong. And he says, can't I even speak? And in the, in the RSV, um, it translates this, um, was it not but a word? And, uh, of course, the point is that when it comes to words of faith, Words of faith will always be provocative to people in unbelief. You see the point? Because it convicts unbelief. And when there are people, you know, believers, who something happens and they instinctively are, know, oh goodness, light has shone on a bit of darkness in me now. Oh goodness, I'm exposed. We, as I say, we have two choices. We, we, we admit the darkness that's been brought to the light and put it right, or we try and smear, you know, whoever it is that, that God is using to shine that light on us. And so that's, that, that, that's what's happening here to David. So words of faith will always get a bad reaction from what the Bible calls the evil heart of unbelief. And of course, Eliab's unbelief here stands condemned and so he defends himself by discrediting the source. But just notice, David is not deliberately trying to condemn anyone. He's, he's just saying, hey, how come, you know, how, how come we're letting Goliath frighten us when the law's on our side? See, 
David, he's not trying to provoke. He's just, he's just talking faith. And yet the effect was, obviously, that Eliab's unbelief stood condemned. And so Eliab defends himself by trying to discredit David, okay, and that's, you know, that, that's a principle that just, you know, works, and I mean, certainly there are people here who have um, uh, experienced that. Okay, verse 30, he then turned away to someone else and brought up the same meta, uh, matter, and the men answered him as before. So David, he thought, oh, well, okay, there's no point talking to my brother about it, but he, you know, he kept talking to the other men. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. Now remember, King Saul knew David. All right, he'd already met David. Remember, David used to play the harp for him, and that calmed him when King Saul was having his demonic episodes. All right, so he, you know, he knew David, and so he got word of David being there. And so what happens now is that God gets David before King Saul. So David's turned up and he said, hey, how come we're letting, you know, Goliath standing our way? You know, he's defying the armies of the living God. Uh, so he gets pitched into with Eliab, but word gets to Saul that David is here. And, uh, you know, sort of da David's talking a bit of faith. And so David ends up before the king. But notice again, David hasn't arranged for himself to be before King Saul. This, this, is, this is just happening. This is God unfolding it. This isn't David, oh, I'm going to go to the battle lines and I'm going to make a fuss and I'm going to get before the king and I'm going to be the big hero. That's, that's, that's not in David. He just went to the battle line because his dad sent him there to take food for his brothers. He sees what's happening and he says, why, oh, why, why aren't we trusting the Lord? Why are we letting Goliath stand in our way? That's all David's done. Entirely innocent, perfectly righteous, okay? So, and, and it's not him trying to make a name for himself in any way at all, but that obviously is what Eliab accused him of. So let's read verses 31 and 33, as we now see him ending up uh, before the king. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. That, you know, this is amazing. He's saying, in effect, that's okay, Saul, I'll be the champion. I mean, for, you know, David realized for 40 days, you know, Goliath has, every day, Goliath has said, come on, who's going to come and fight me? And no one's come forward. That was the disgrace. And so David says to Saul, that's okay, I'll go out, I'll, I'll fight him. You've, you've got your champion, okay. And, uh, and now, David meets his second bout of opposition. And it's this, it's what Saul says to him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. Now, the point is, that the second bout of opposition, where does it now come from? It comes from the leadership of God's people. And what is it? What is the nature of this opposition? Well, it reveals everything we need to know about Saul. Saul says, no, you can't do it, mate. Not possible. You can't do it. Won't happen. Because they're viewing it 
Saul is viewing this from a, a humanistic perspective. Even though he's a believer, he's one of God's people, in the, in, in, you know, where the rubber's hitting the road, he is not viewing it through faith at all. And so he says, no, David, can't happen. You can't do it. You're not able. He's bigger than you. He's more experienced than you. But, of course, the irony is this. David knew perfectly well that he wasn't able. But what was David thinking? What was in David's heart? It wasn't, I'll go out there and I'll sort him out. What was in David's heart was, I'll go out there and God will sort him out. Can you see? So you've got the leader of God's people saying, you're not able, end of story. But David's response is, I know I'm not able, but God is able. And if no one else is going to be the willing channel, then I'll go out there and be the willing channel. David knew that God could have beaten Goliath through anyone, but no one else was willing to go out there. But David was willing to put his head on the chopping block. He was willing to put his faith where his mouth was. Okay, So he said, okay, I'll go out and do it. Okay. The Christian life, in every aspect, can be summed up in five words. You can't, but he can. Uh, that, that's the Christian life, isn't it? So when, you know, whatever it is, it, you know, in God's word, we have his will for our lives. So whatever it is, challenges of faith, Goliaths we face in our personal life, particular obstacles at this time in our life, or just how to be a good husband, uh, how to be a good father, how, you know, how to be a a wise employee at work, okay? And we think, goodness, how can I do this? Well, the answer is quite simply, you can't. But if we realise that we can't, then he can through us. Can you see what I mean? It's just a question of getting us out of the way and bringing us to the point where we're submitting our thinking to his word so that we view things according to the teaching of his word, rather than our own kind of fleshly, normal human point of view. Because remember, what we're seeing all the way through here is that God's ways are not our ways. Okay. And so what, what David goes on to say to him, but David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. You see, at the heart of everything that David is saying, he's thinking of the Lord. His viewpoint is God's viewpoint. He's, he's going by God's word rather than by purely human reasoning and understanding. And he goes on to say, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And basically, what David is saying here, and he, you know, he's kind of arguing, he's trying to convince Saul that it's going to be all right. And what he's saying is this. He says, look, okay, yeah, I mean, there's that great big over nine-foot bloke out there. And yeah, he's a seasoned warrior. He's really experienced, and I'm just a boy. 
But what he's saying is, look, through my youth, I've looked after sheep, and there have been times when wild animals have come, and they've tried to attack the sheep, and I've fought them off. And as I've fought them off, the Lord has been with me. And I've seen the Lord deliver me from bears and lions. And what he's saying is, look, I've, I know what it is to have little victories in my life. I know what it is to overcome in small things. And he's saying that the God who's delivered me in little things, now that there's a really big thing, I know he's going to deliver me in the big thing as well. Can you see the point? So when we have experience of deliverances in our lives that are small, what's the problem then when we're confronted with a biggie? It's the same God. The, you know, the, the, op you know, the, the problem may be bigger than ones we faced in the past, but the point is it's the same God who gave us victory in the little things is there to give us victory in the big things as well. So the point is the God of small deliverances is the God of big ones as well. And, you know, there's a principle that we've, you know, of, often spoken of, that, that if, if, if we prove faithful in small things, then any time that God wants to use us in regards to something that's a real biggie, well, if we've been faithful in small things, then we can know that we can be faithful in the big things as well by his grace. You know, and again, we've talked about the pennies and pounds principles, haven't we? You know, I mean, we just say in regards to good budgeting, if you take care of the pennies, the pounds will take care of themselves. And we know that's absolutely true. And for us as believers, if we're all the time making sure that we're being faithful and keeping short accounts in the little day-to-day -day obediences, the ongoing day-to-day -day obediences of ordinary day-to-day -day life, then any time when something of a bigger order is required of us, well, we can know if we've been faithful to the pennies, God will take care of the pounds. And so when the biggie things come along, uh, then we know that the Lord is going to be with us just as he is in the little things. And so basically, in regards to this, Paul relents. Uh, sorry, Saul relents. And he says, okay, Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. But look what happens now, okay? Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand chose five smooth stones from the stream and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Now, the problem here is that, okay, now Saul, as the leader of God's people, says, okay, you go out to be um, the champion then. But the problem is he then expects David to do things like he would do them. Do you see what I mean? Because what he now does is he says, okay, you're going to need my armour. And he puts all this armour on David. The tunic, you know, and of course all the different parts of the armour, clips on and the sword and everything like that. And the result of it is uh, David can't move. 
it's too heavy. He's, you know, it's too heavy. And, and Davis said, look, that, this, this is absolutely no good at all. And what we're seeing here, if Eliab, his brother, accused him of self-will, then now Saul wants to impose on him the armour of self-effort. And you see, the big difference between Saul and David, in fact, the big difference between virtually all of God's people in that army at that time and David was simply this. You see, they were relying on themselves. They were relying on the human way of doing things. They were purely relying on their armour, on their weaponry, on their training. And because they were relying on themselves, the moment they saw <laughs> Goliath, they said, oh, that's it, end of story. Now, what was David trusting in? Was he trusting in armour, in swords, in chariots, as that, you know, that, that, that verse that got referred to earlier? No, he was trusting in the Lord. He didn't need all that. And again, we could, you know, I think, apply this prophetically to, you know, restoring church life. Because when you, when you look at the, you know, the, the, the whole complicated nature of church life when it gets run like an organisation, using all the world's ways of doing things, advertising, uh, depending on big leaders, you see what I mean? Just doing things like the world does, advertising, you name it. And then when you look at a biblical church, well, it looks so hopelessly simplistic, doesn't it? it? It looks so totally unimpressive, so totally not up to the job, because it doesn't have all those resources that the unbiblical church setup has. And I'll tell you, the reason it doesn't, it don't need it, because our faith is not in the world's way of doing things. Our faith is in the Lord. And therefore, if we trust him, we will do things according to his word, church life included, even though from the world's point of view, it looks thoroughly unimpressive and not up to the job. You see the difference? So, and for so many, you know, sort of Christians today, when they do come up against that, when you show them what the Bible teaches about church life, the, the big thing they can't get over is they say, well, it, but it's just so simplistic, it's so small, it's so unimpressive. How are you going to do anything if that's what a church is like? You see what I mean? And they forget that, you know, back in New Testament times, it was churches like that that turned the world upside down. Not churches like we've got them today. Not churches like we've had from the time of the early church fathers. Back then, all there were were little biblical churches, numerically small, little extended families of God. Do you see what I mean? They didn't have all this armour of self-effort. They just trusted the Lord. And so this is now what Saul is trying to do. He says to David, OK, I'll let you go out there and do it, but you're going to do it man's way. And David said, no, I can't do it man's way. If I've got all that armour on, that's just going to get in my way. All I need is to trust the Lord and to do this the way he is showing me. And remember that Jesus said, the flesh is of no avail. So all that armour, all the worldly ways of doing things, it's of absolutely no avail whatsoever. The Lord doesn't need it, he doesn't want it, and it was never his plan to use it. 
All he wants are people being faithful and living according to his word, no matter how unimpressive from a worldly point of view it looks. And so we see that eventually David said, no, don't want the armour, you can keep that. And it says he took his staff in his hand. And we, we've seen before, haven't we, throughout the Old Testament, that whenever you get this idea of the staff in someone's hands, it's a picture of trusting in the Lord. It's a picture of saying, I can't do this, but God's going to do it. You remember when Moses, when they got to the Red Sea, and that, you know, that Moses, he, he, he lifted the staff over and then the, the sea parted. Um, remember this story with Elisha when there was the poisoned well and he got a piece of wood and he threw it in and suddenly the, the poison was, you know, was gone and the water was fine. And, and so, you, you know, you find this, it's a picture of, of faith. And David is saying, no, look, I'm, I'm trusting the Lord. Um, that's all I need to do. And then it says, and he drew, and he, he took five smooth stones and his sling, and he approached the Philistine. Now, the thing about the five smooth stones, I think I'm right in saying, is you think, well, why, you know, why, why did he take five? Uh, I believe it's, it's the case that, Eli, uh, that, that Goliath had four brothers, didn't he? Mm. And so I think this was David being prepared. He would have known. He, he kind of knew that Goliath had four brothers. So it seems he took, he took a stone. So ju ju just in case Goliath's four brothers, once Goliath was sorted out, uh, you know, he had four stones in reserve in case the brothers uh, stepped in. Anyway, I, I think probably that, that explains that. Okay, right. So now here he is, you know, approaching uh, the Philistine. And uh, so let's move into the, like, the, the battle proper. Right, and, um, okay, let's read verse, uh, verse 41 now. And it says, Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. And now we're going to see the third bout of opposition that David got. We've seen he got it from his family. He got it from the rest of God's people, other believers. And now he's going to get it from the mountain. If you like, Goliath is the mountain that needs to be moved. So now he gets the bout of opposition from the, 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 the mountain. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now, there's something interesting there. Goliath didn't curse Israel by his gods. He just said, oh, you're followers of Saul, and, you know, sort of like, you know, you're, you're, you know I despise you, you know, your armies of Israel. But here, he starts calling on his gods. It's as if he knows he's up against now someone of faith. Do you see what I mean? There was no mention of God or gods from the Israelites, but now with David, he's gone out there in the name of the Lord, and now Philistine cursed him by his gods. So now, you know, can you see, we're not just kind of like human strength against human strength. You see, this is, you know, the cosmic battle going on. This is God versus the devil. You can see now that this is, you know, this is spiritual warfare, okay. And... Um, Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So the point is that, you know, that this is, this is typical of Satan, and it's something you've just got to get used to. Uh, I mean, this, this could have been, 
if, if, if David had taken his eyes off the Lord <laughs> and, and just looked at, you know, looked up at Goliath with natural eyes rather than looking down on him through the eyes of the Lord, this could have suddenly turned into a very terrifying situation, couldn't it? And, uh, you know, the Bible does talk about Satan being a roaring lion, going around looking whom he may devour. And, you know, and, and certainly it's, you know, it's the case that one of the, the big things that Satan tries to use is fear. If Satan can put fear in our hearts, when we, when we succumb to the fear that he puts in our hearts, we stop thinking rationally. Uh, we've looked before at the story of Jesus walking on the water, haven't we? And when Peter, you know, kind of like went to him. And, uh, but we saw as well that, you know, that the disciples, they were out on the wall, you know, on, on the boat, you know, and Jesus wasn't with them. And, uh, you know, the storm was getting worse and worse. And they were absolutely terrified. And then when Jesus came to them, they said, it's a ghost. You know, and they got even more frightened because the fear made them not think straight. And of course, the crazy thing about that is that firstly, the Jews didn't believe in ghosts. They knew better than that. When you die, it's up or down. You know, there's no dead people coming back. And yet they said, look, it's a ghost. So, you know, they, they weren't thinking clearly at all. But also, why, you know, in order for it to have been a ghost, that must have meant that Jesus died since they saw him last. Well, what reason did they have to think he died? And so the point is fear caused them to be irrational. And whenever there's irrationality, that is where Satan is getting in. You're not thinking straight, and you're going by responding to fear rather than responding to truth and the word of God. But here, David doesn't succumb at all. Uh, you know, he, he kind of, you know, he, he just takes it on the chin, and he doesn't give in to fear. And you'll remember as well in the, you know, the story when, uh, you know, when Joshua was leading um, God's people into the promised land, that the... The, f the first big battle they had was they had to take Jericho, which was a walled city, a big walled city. And, you know, remember they had to walk around it for, you know, kind of like seven days and, and all that. And they, they were terrified of Jericho, all right. They, they were really, really, really frightened. And yet, when the spies went in, do you remember the spies went in and Rahab helped them? Okay, Rahab got, got saved. And... Rahab told the spies that the city of Jericho had been terrified of Israel turning up since they heard about the crossing of the Red Sea 40 years earlier. So the point is, however frightened Israel was of the enemy, Jericho, how, how are we going to do this? The truth of the matter is the, em the enemy was far more frightened of Israel if only Israel had known it. And the point is, well, understand this, we are the ones that Satan is frightened of. And he only uses all this fear because he's trying to stop us staying and acting according to our faith because he fears every believer so much, but only when they're going by faith. Do you see? Only when they're going by God's word. That's what he fears. But if he can get believers caved in by fear, whatever it is, condemnation from other believers, uh, in, you know, like Eliab, all these false accusations to try and make David wilt and, and all that, you know, and give in to the fear and the condemnation, that's what Satan's trying to do. But he's trying to do it because he's terrified of what the Lord is going to do through us insofar as we don't give in to fear and keep going purely according 
to his word, okay? So, you know, there's, uh, you know, this phrase, isn't there, like, know your enemy, you know, sort of like during the war, know your enemy. Oh, I suppose it's kind of, you know, good advice. But what we've got to realise as well is that Satan knows his enemy as well. And, uh, you know, there, 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 there was that story in the... Um, in the New Testament, in Acts, when you had the sons of, of the priests and they tried to cast these demons out, they weren't believers. And, you know, the demons, you know, sort of like, you know, the man who the demons were in beat, beat them all up, you know, because he was so strong because the demons gave him strength. And what the sons of Sceva were trying to do, they were saying, we, we cast you out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, all right? And what happened is the man who had the demons beat them all up. And the demons said to them, well, Paul we know, and, and Jesus we know, but who are you? Now, the point, isn't it incredible? The demon, obviously they knew Jesus, but they knew Paul. So isn't it amazing to think that to, if we are faithful to the Lord, the demons have got our number. They're terrified of us. They're terrified of us. It's only carnal Christians that they're not frightened of. And even then, they're only desperately trying to keep them being carnal because they know that the moment that they stop being carnal, they're a big threat to them. So the point is that, that it's always so important that we don't give in to fear and we all the time go by the word of God, by the truth of what the Lord has shown us. Okay, so let's, let's now go on because Satan, all right, it, Goliath has had a go at David. Now, look, look now because now David has his say. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with the sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Now, can you see, the reason that Goliath was winning up to this point is Goliath was coming against God's people with sword and spear and javelin, all right? And God's people, they thought that's all they had as well. And they didn't have a chance against Goliath. Well, now, David's saying, look, all you've got are your weapons. All you've got is your strength. All you've got is that you're nine foot tall. That's all you've got. I've got the Lord, and you haven't got a chance. And he says, this day, the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Is it David? He's out to prove the Lord. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. Now that's where Saul and the rest of Israel have gone wrong. Because they weren't looking to the Lord properly anymore, they were just going by human effort, human ways of thinking. Whereas David is looking to the Lord. He's not looking to, you know, he's just going to do whatever God tells him to do, even though it doesn't look very impressive by the world's standards. So he says, all those gathered here will know it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. Now the point is, to the extent that we think the battle is ours, we're going to lose it. Us versus Satan well, you're probably going to get trounced. But when we realise the battle is the Lord's, when it's the Lord through me against Satan, well, Satan's under our feet. Can you see the difference? 
And the difference between David and the rest of God's people in this instance is that he's the one who's looking at everything through the Lord's eyes, whereas everyone else were looking through at things merely through human eyes, all right? And so therefore here, he gives, as it were, Goliath a piece of his mind. And, um, you know, we, you know, I referred earlier to the, you know, know your enemy. And, and if that's good advice, and it is, you know, uh, Paul says in the Bible that we're not ignorant of Satan's wiles. So, yeah, know your enemy. But if know your enemy is good advice, then how much better advice is know your God? And that's what David did, you see. He was a man of, after God's own heart. He knew the Lord. And because he knew the Lord, he knew what the Lord wanted, and therefore he went with the Lord he was available for the Lord to work through him, and, and, and he did things God's way rather than man's way. But the problem was, well, but is that, that he was the only one doing it. And therefore, he's getting it in the neck from every possible direction. The idea in spiritual warfare, okay, is that obviously Satan's trying to give it to us in the neck, but Christians stand together in unity and bang, we, you know, we keep Satan under our feet, as it were. The tragedy is here that what David's experiencing, he's getting it in the neck from his own family, who are believers. He's getting it in the neck from other Christians, you know, other believers who are believers. And now he's getting it in the neck from Satan himself through Goliath. Now, he's meant to be getting it from Satan, but it's a tragedy when Satan has an inroad through God's people. But you see throughout Scripture that that's exactly what happens again and again and again. And so often the story of the prophets is precisely, it was God's own people turning against them. And often it seemed that the prophets failed. They weren't listened to, they weren't heeded to, and God's people just carried on in their own carnal ways. But the point is, whether you know, sort of one's heeded to or not, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're going to stick and do things according to God's word, no matter what reaction you get from whomever. You know, cause, and the closer you are to God's word, the worse reaction that you're going to get uh, from Satan through people who aren't right with God. So that's, that's just something that we, we need to live with. And, uh, you know, but the point is that precisely because David knew his God, that, that there were three things that, that were true of him. And the first one was certainty. To, 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, Paul says, I know who I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Absolute certainty. No, you know, everything is working together for good. The Lord is in control. I know whom I've believed, and he is absolutely faithful. See, there's certainty. As Satan can't do anything with certainty that is a certainty in the Lord. Not cocksureness and certainty in yourself and our ways of doing things, not sinful arrogance, but when it's certainty in the Lord, nothing Satan can do about that. And then the second thing that had developed in David because he knew the Lord was courage. Romans 8.31, if God be for us, who shall be against us? And, uh, you know, we've often said here, isn't it, there are 365 instances of the phrase, fear not in the Bible. Uh, that's, that's one for every day of the year. And uh, you have to use one twice in the leap year. But that's, that's, not, that's not 
a coincidence that there's 365. And of course, the point is, in saying fear not, courage is not being without fear. People who don't know fear are stupid. They're not brave, they're stupid. They're foolhardy. Bravery is when you do what's right, even though you are fearful in doing it. Do you see the difference? If you've got someone who knows no fear, fear is not one of the emotions they experience, well, they're not brave, are they? Bravery is when you're doing something you're frightened of, when you're facing fear. So when the Bible says fear not, it's because it's normative in the human condition, in a fallen world, to be fearful. But it's whether we overcome that because we know if God is for us, who shall be against us? And then the other thing, the third thing, is that David developed absolute immovability. And, it, you know, in Ephesians 6, uh, you know, when Paul's doing the thing about the armour of God, he says, having done all, stand. Stand therefore in the power of God. It's sort of stand there and don't move. Just don't move because you're standing on the fact that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is in control and that Satan is defeated. Now that makes us absolutely immovable. And, uh, you know, sort of like in some ways the stance of the Christian life is sort of, well, don't just do something, stand there. It's the opposite to the world. The world says, don't just stand there, do something. For us, it's the other way around. Don't just stand there. So, sorry, don't, <laughs> don't just do something, stand there. So unless all our doing is coming out of a absolute standing on, you know, on, on, on the Lord, but when you've got that immovability, again, Satan can't do anything with it, except he, he gets madder and madder and madder at you, okay? Now look, verse 48, now the battle begins. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. I mean, that's keenness, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's sort of, I mean, here's a man overcoming fear. Here's a man gung-ho in obedience to the word of God. Can you see what I mean? And, uh, you know, and saying, well, I don't, I don't care what the consequences are. Whatever the consequences, bang, I'm going with the word of God. And I'm running with what the Lord has told me to do. You know, the Lord's given me a ball. I'm running with it. And that ball is his word. It's the truth of his word. And then in verse 49, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. A bang, and suddenly it's all over. You think, hey, well, where's this big fight? Because when the Lord kind of bang does it, it's, it's over. And David, he got the sling, and this big stone straight into Goliath's cranium. You know, nothing like that had ever entered Goliath's head before. Oh, so I couldn't resist that. And, and so, so the point is that, that when God does it, bang, it's done, if you see what I mean. And you know, I, yeah, I know from my own experience that there are things where, you know, I mean, there's obviously always ongoing things, but things, as it were, where, you know, sort of been there, done it, got, got the deliverance, got the T-shirt, home dry. And, you know, and, and this dreadful... This dreadful lead-up, all this, oh, this is awful, and all the fear, and all the da-da-da-da-da. And then suddenly you look back and, oh, oh, it's all over now. It's finished. It's done. I'm home dry. 
Why was I so worried? Can you see what I mean? Yeah. And that's, that's rather what it's like. When God actually does it, bang, it's, 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 it's kind of there. That's, that's that done it. And uh, so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. So now he decapitated him. All right. And, uh, you know, so he's really getting ahead in life. Um, and, and, and it's, you know, sort of, and it just, bang, completely just chops his head, and it's all done. And it's absolutely clear to Israel who, you know, sort of like who has got the victory here. And, uh, and then as a result of this, uh, verses, uh, let's see, 52 to 53, look at this. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. And, uh, well, you know, that was it. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharaim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem and he put the Philistine's weapons in his own tent. And the point is that, that, that this now, as a result of what David has done, this gives courage to the rest of God's people. And, and that's important. Um, now, ironically, precisely because of this, David became someone that the Israelites wanted to follow because they saw, just by the way he lived, by practical demonstration example, they saw that God was with him in a way that he wasn't with Saul. And as a result of this, Saul grew not just jealous of David, but murderously jealous. And for years and years and years, David had to actually go on the run. And where, whereas he was actually anointed as Israel's appointed king, Saul ruled for years after this, and David was an outlaw. So even though David should have been the king, he was an outlaw because Saul was doing everything he could to actually murder him. But the point was that as a result of this, that certainly God's people were given an example, and even though here it led to David, I mean, yeah, for a while he was a hero, but then very soon afterwards, for years and years and years, he became an outlaw. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, again, you know, you always say God's always humbling us. He's always making sure that we're not getting the glory, that we don't think, oh, hey, look at me, limelight time, you know, because the Lord will always, you know, make sure that, 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 that nothing is, is taking the glory instead of him. But the point was that King David, you know, sort of like he was proved here to God's people and therefore people started to look to him rather than to look to Saul, whom they'd been looking uh, to before. And of course, at the end of the day, that is why the Pharisees hated Jesus so much. Jesus quite naturally had people looking to him rather than the Pharisees. People, now they had a choice. 
And when they looked away from the existing leaders and looked to Jesus, well, obviously, that's what sealed Jesus' fate, and the leaders, because of their jealousy, tried to kill him. And that's exactly what Saul does now, repeatedly, to King David over the years. But the secret, now we're just our last verse, now go back to chapter 16. And the secret here, and it is a secret that we need to keep coming back to in our own lives, but uh, in, in, one, in chapter 16 and verse 13. And it is this. <coughs> so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And can you see, it was here, Samuel represents God's calling for David. David was already a believer. I mean, from a boy, he was a believer. He was a man after God's own heart. He was born again. But now, this is, this is his service. He's been called now into his function, if you like, his gift. And what happens here is that he's baptised with the Holy Spirit. He receives the power of the Holy Spirit. And the difference between David and so many others of God's people at the time is that David was honestly trusting in God and his power. He wasn't trusting in his own resources, you know, in his own intelligence, his own, you know, sort of like, you know, snappy personality or anything like that. He was trusting in the Lord. And as it says in one of the prophets, can't remember which one now, uh, but, but, you know, but that famous phrase when it says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that's what David knew. It wasn't going to be him doing things for the Lord. It was going to be him being available so that the Lord could do things in and through him instead of him. So that, that, that was the key. So, you know, whatever, whatever the Goliaths are at the moment, we all know we can all face different Goliaths at different times, but whatever they are, no matter how big they look, you know, here's little us and there's this big problem or this big challenge or this big something. I know what God wants me to do, but I can't even begin to get my head round doing it, all right? No matter how big it looks, remember, we have the victory. And it's not going to be us doing it. It's got to be the Lord doing it. But the point is we've got to run out to that challenge first. Do you see what I mean? Because it's, the, it's not going to be us doing it. It's going to be the Lord doing it but he's going to be doing it through us. So we've got to make the moves. We've got to live in that obedience. And if we do, well, then he will do in and through us what we can't do of and for ourselves.